Let's pray before we go back to God's Word. Praise and honor to You, Lord. Father, we just pray that Your Spirit would guide us as we look to Your Word this evening. Lord, I pray that You would just drive home what what You have been teaching me as I've been looking at this passage, and You would drive it home to all who hear the message, Lord, and that we would believe that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, keep your Bibles open there to John chapter 11. Jesus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Astounding as this historical truth is, the fact that Jesus was raised is really just the waves on the surface of an ocean that is miles deep in spiritual truth. Tonight, we're going to probe the depths of that ocean. We certainly won't get to the bottom because Lazarus' raising is a very special piece of God's gospel that I believe we will spend all eternity marveling at. But we're going to look beneath the surface, and there we'll find the ugliness of humanity and the beauty of Jesus, and the glory of the gospel of God's salvation. And my intent is to incite us to worship Jesus by submerging us in the deep waters of who he is and what he did on the cross. Our launching point is going to be verses 33 through 35. At this point in the narrative, Jesus encounters Mary. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, She saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus cry? Well, that's a silly question, you might say. Jesus cried because he loved this family. Sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead. John makes it very clear from the start, verses 3 and verses 5, that Jesus loved these folks. And he tells us in verse 36 that when the people saw him weep, they were saying, see how he loved him. So, okay, I'll grant you that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But that, but that cannot be why he cried. That cannot be why he cried. Think about who we're talking about here. This is Jesus. Jesus is God. The first couple of verses of John's Gospel tell us that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John goes on. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And then there was Jesus' powerful proclamation here in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus 
John tells us, is the Creator. Jesus is the originator and the sustainer of life. Jesus is life. Do you think there was any doubt in Jesus' mind that he could bring Lazarus back? Further, do you think there was any doubt in his mind that he would bring Lazarus back? Not a chance. In verse 4, he says, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. In verse 6, John tells us, despite his love for sick Lazarus, Jesus waited intentionally two days before going to visit him. And when he hears that Lazarus is dead, he says this. He says he's glad that he wasn't there. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. And even in his prayer, we can see Jesus knew that the power of the Father would raise Lazarus. He says, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. The whole story, even the whole Gospel of John, bears an unbroken testimony that Jesus is God, that he has a plan, and that everything happens according to that plan. So why cry? Why not simply smile and say, foolish and faithless people, no need to mourn. I am life. Rejoice. Lazarus, come forth. But Jesus cried. Jesus cried, I submit, because there were things going on beneath the surface, things no one at the time could fully understand, things that we can understand now only in the light of Jesus' finished work on the cross and his glorious resurrection on the third day. So, the question remains, why did Jesus cry? There are three reasons I want us to meditate on this evening, and there is a progression in these three. Each one is more significant than the last, and each one leads us closer to the cross. <clears throat> First, Jesus cried because he had a deep empathy for human suffering. So if you're taking notes want to make an outline, first point is empathy for suffering. I'll start with an illustration. When kids are little, they break a lot of toys. Broken toys often lead to tears. Tears generally alert the parent that assistance is required. When kids are small and their toys are simple, it is often true that mom or dad can repair the toy quite easily. Maybe a doll just needs its clothing put back on correctly, or even an arm or a leg popped back into place. Maybe the tracks need to be snapped in correctly so that the train or the cars will run smoothly. Maybe a knocked over block skyscraper needs to be restacked or maybe the remote control just needs new batteries. How does a good and loving parent respond to a child's tears? We'll come back to that in a second. But first, I want to remind you, though surely such a reminder is unnecessary in the world, as the world suffers through a pandemic and its physical, emotional, and economic consequences, I want to remind you that the brokenness of the human experience does not end with dislocated doll arms and dead batteries. Our lives are beset by brokenness, broken bodies, broken minds, broken hearts, broken spirits, broken relationships. And each of us, like Lazarus, face that final physical brokenness, death. It is because of this brokenness that Mary is crying. Lazarus, her brother, is dead. 
a body broken, a relationship broken, a heart broken. She collapses, weeping at the feet of Jesus, and says in verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The Greek word weeping here for Mary is klao, and it means to weep or wail aloud, to express uncontainable, audible grief, to sob. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary wishes that Jesus had prevented Lazarus's life and her life from being broken. She wants Lazarus's life and her life restored. She wants things to be put back together. Martha has the same words for Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. No mention is made of Martha crying, and it's easy to imagine that Martha, who in Luke 10 famously instructed Jesus on how he ought to instill a proper work ethic in Mary, it's easy to imagine that her words are a rebuke, even to Jesus, a rebuke to quit procrastinating and to do something. Even now, she says in verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. To which Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. I know he will rise again on the last day, Martha says in verse 24. But I want him back now. Well, she didn't say that last part, but I think that's what she was asking Jesus for. Both Martha and Mary have faith, but their eyes are fixed on the here and now. And the here and now is broken, and they want Jesus to fix it. They want him to put things back together the way they were. And Jesus saw Mary weeping. Jesus heard the insistence in Martha's request. And Jesus, Jesus wept. Why? After all, this is Jesus, as we said, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. This one life, this is an easy fix for Jesus. But just as a kind parent does not mock or chastise a child for their tears over a broken toy, Jesus did not rebuke Martha and Mary. He gently, if boldly, instructed them. I am the resurrection, he said in verse 25. And in verse 40, he said, you will see the glory of God. He was firm in the truth, but he shared in their pain. I know this because I know the character of God. Psalm 103 tells us that just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Jesus knew that Mary and Martha loved him. He knew that they worshipped him. He knew that they knew, even as Martha confessed in verse 27, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And he also knew that they were but dust. And having been made himself in the likeness of men, Jesus had entered into that dust. And so he entered into their brokenness. He sympathized with their weakness. As fully man, he had entered into their brokenness. As the sinless son of God, however, he did not do so without sin. Sorry, he did so without sin. <laughs> Sorry. As the sinless son of God, he entered into their brokenness without sin. And what I mean by that is he did not think lightly of their anguish, nor deny their sorrow, nor 
mock their pain. And so the great king of the universe, being also a perfect and righteous man, wept with those who wept, even as Paul commands us to do. Jesus cried because he had a deep empathy for human suffering. But there's something else going on here, something one level deeper. I am convinced by the character of God and the broader context of the gospel story that Jesus wept in sympathy for human suffering. But the language used here in John 11 points to another basis for Jesus' tears. There's a second kind of brokenness that pervades this narrative. It's not a physical brokenness. It's not sickness. It's a spiritual brokenness. It's the brokenness of unbelieving hearts, the brokenness of hard hearts that are not softened even by the revelation of the goodness and the glory of God. We can trace the brokenness of unbelief through the entire story. Jesus declared from the beginning that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death, but in the glory of God and the glorification of himself. He said so at the beginning in verse 4, and he reminded them at the end in verse 40, when he said, you will see the glory of God. But look how those around him wavered. Thomas, good old double-minded Thomas, Didymus, it means twofold or twain. When Thomas heard that Lazarus was dead, though he believed Jesus enough to follow, let us go also, he says in verse 16, yet he distrusted Jesus enough to end that sentence with, so that we may die with him. And then there's Mary. Mary, who we know loved to sit at Jesus' feet, faithfully absorbing his teachings, is now collapsed at his feet, not in worship, not with supplication, but pouring out grief and almost a fatalistic regret and saying, if you had been here, if only you had been here, things would not have ended this way. Martha says she believes, but when it comes time to open the tomb, not expecting, she's not expecting the glory of God, is she? She's expecting the unholy stench of rotting flesh. And beyond these three, there's a group of people referred to only as the Jews. These are the crowd who came from Jerusalem to console the sisters. These people were, like Thomas, divided in their opinion of Jesus. Back in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, some of them were saying that Jesus had a demon and was insane while others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the, the eyes of the blind. Still, when Jesus would proclaim to the crowd that he was God, there's a singleness of response. In John 8:59, after he said, before Abraham was born, I am, they picked up stones to throw at him. In John 10, 31, after he said, I and the Father are one, they picked up stones to stone him. And in John 10, 39, after he said, the Father is in me and I in the Father, they sought to seize him. It's in this context we need to read verse 33 once again. Verse 33, chapter 11. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. The English translation here really misses the force of the, the original Greek. 
The phrase deeply moved in the Greek comes from a word that literally means snort like an angry horse. I kid you not. Metaphorically, it means to be moved with rage so as to sternly rebuke those who brought the offense. But John qualifies Jesus' anger here by saying that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit. So there's a heat behind Jesus' righteous indignation, but it does not boil over. Rather, John reports, Jesus was troubled. The Greek here means put in motion, to agitate back and forth, to shake to and fro. Putting this together with being deeply moved in spirit, we should understand that Jesus was angered to the point of being shaken inside, and perhaps even to literal shuddering. But where was the offense? Why the indignation? Again, we need to remember who we are talking about. Jesus knows the hearts and the minds of those around him. And he also knows all things that will happen even before they happen. He knows that these three, Martha, Mary, and Thomas, will eventually be confirmed in their faith and they will follow him all the days of their lives. He knows that, as we read in the next chapter, Martha will host a dinner in his honor, that Mary will anoint his feet with costly perfume as an act of worship and thanksgiving, and even that Thomas will famously declare that Jesus is his Lord and his God. He knows, too, that some of the crowd of the Jews, seeing the raising of Lazarus, would even put their trust in him, verse 45. So why the indignation? I believe it's for the hardened hearts. Some there would not believe. In fact, some, verse 46 says, would go to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the chief priests would convene a council. If you read on in chapter 11, you will see that they, they reason that if we let Jesus go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come. And they will take away both our place and our nation. And so they would plan, verse 53, to kill Jesus. And they would even plan a little bit later to kill Lazarus. That's chapter 12, verse 10. They planned to kill Lazarus because so many were continuing to believe in Jesus on account of his resurrection. Jesus knew, John tells us in chapter 6 of his gospel, verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would believe, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that there is not a creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus knew every broken, hardened, disbelieving, and murderous heart. And at this point, it's important to know that the word for weep here in verse 35 applied to Jesus, as in Jesus wept, means to shed quiet tears. Different from the word that was used for Mary, which meant loud crying. But Jesus shed quiet tears. In his righteous anger over the spiritual brokenness surrounding him, Jesus is not wailing like Mary and like the Jews. And he's not snorting out rebuke. He is shaken on the inside. He is quietly shuddering. He is weeping silently. He is crying because there are some who will not believe. There's another time Jesus cried because of unbelieving hearts. It was on the occasion of his triumphal entry as the people hailed him as king and messiah 
And then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's Luke 19. Jesus wept over the city because he knew that ultimately the judgment of God would rightly fall upon Jerusalem for their rejection of him as God's Messiah. And Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb because he knew that ultimately the judgment of God would rightly fall on many there because of their rejection of him. And he knew what that judgment would mean as he himself described it in Matthew chapter 25. That the judgment of God means the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He also knew if they would only believe, if they would only submit to him as king, that they would instead inherit his kingdom and enter into eternal life. Returning to my analogy of the broken toy, these children, the unbelieving at Lazarus' tomb, the people of Jerusalem, they're like kids who break a toy, but they keep playing with it, even though it clearly isn't working anymore, even though it might be frustrating them. And the parent comes and gently says, let me help you with that. And the child says, no. And he insists, I like it this way. Leave me alone. I don't need you to help me. Now, such an attitude might be humorous in a two-year-old. But as we get older and our lives inevitably are broken by sin and Jesus comes to save and we, in our pride, tell him that we know better that we can take care of it ourselves. Thank you very much. It is no longer a laughing matter. There are temporal and eternal consequences for rejecting the salvation of God, for rejecting the Messiah. So at one level, we see that Jesus cried because he had entered into the brokenness of the human condition and he had a deep empathy for our human suffering. And at a deeper level still, Jesus cried because he was grieved by the spiritual brokenness of the souls around him. The spiritual brokenness that would lead many to reject him and to suffer the judgment of God. And thirdly and finally, we go one more level deeper still. And that brings us to the cross. What could cause the Prince of Peace to be roiled? What could cause the King of Kings to shudder? What could make the wonderful counselor weep? I'll return once more to my analogy of the child with the toy. Imagine now that the toy is not broken in some trivial way. Imagine that the toy is not an inexpensive, disposable trinket. Imagine instead that it was a unique, one of a kind, maybe a fairly heirloom that had been passed down through the generations. Imagine it was something of inestimable value. And it is broken, but good. It's shattered into pieces. No simple fixes. It's going to take time and money and lots of it 
and only dad, only dad can fix it. Now when the child comes to dad in tears with his broken toy, the child is not the only one crying. Dad, dad is crying too. Dad is crying because he loves his child, but he's also crying because he knows the price he's going to have to pay. Jesus is that dad. We've seen that Jesus has entered into the physical brokenness of men. He feels our suffering. He sympathizes with our pain. But the suffering is only a symptom of an underlying disease. That disease is sin, spiritual brokenness. And Jesus has entered even into that spiritual brokenness. He's seen their unbelief, even in those who claim to believe him. And he knows the fury of the wrath of God do all men for this brokenness. And he knows only he, he knows that only he can fix this brokenness. And he also knows the price that he will have to pay. He knows what the cross means for him, more than just physical brokenness, as if that were not enough. Yes, he will pay for sins with his body and his blood. But more than that, he will become our propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus will pay the price for our spiritual brokenness. As Isaiah says in chapter 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And Jesus knows that when at the cross, God causes the sins of all of us to fall on him. He knows that he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the wrath of God for sin was poured out on Jesus, Jesus experienced the full force, not only of the physical brokenness, but also spiritual brokenness. Jesus would experience separation from God. He knew that this was coming. He knew that he would cry out in anguish in Gethsemane and from the cross. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Jesus knows that that's what's coming. And he knows that Lazarus' death was a foreshadowing of his own, even as Lazarus' resurrection was a preview of his glory to be revealed when his own tomb would be found empty. He even knows also that Lazarus' death would be a catalyst that would turn the authorities against him and in part be the cause of his crucifixion. He knew all this. All these things converged upon him at this singular moment at Lazarus' tomb. It's a wonder that, that right here, he did not cry out himself, tear his clothes, and fall to the ground. It's a wonder that he did not have a breakdown. It's a wonder that he did not rebuke the whole lot of them. But this, this he did. Jesus wept. 
He silently contemplated his physical mortality, his coming spiritual suffering, and the wrath of God. He wept because of the immeasurable price that he knew that he would have to pay. And what should be our response to Jesus' tears tonight? One word comes to mind, and the word is believe. It's used eight times here in the story of Lazarus' raising. What are we to believe? Two truths are explicitly mentioned. Believe that God sent Jesus, verse 42, and believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, verse 25. Let's consider these two, and then we'll close. First, believe that God sent Jesus, verse 42. What does this mean? Well, first of all, it means that God sent Jesus. In other words, that Jesus was who he said he was in John 3.16, that he was the one and only, the unique son of God, the monogenes. He was given by God to the world. It also means believing that God sent Jesus, that he came into our world, that he entered into our brokenness and took our brokenness upon himself on the cross. Here we realize that believing that Jesus came to enter into our brokenness means also believing, first of all, that we are broken. It means confessing that we are sinners. And it also means admitting that we can't fix it ourselves. You can't fix it yourself. I can't fix it myself. It means admitting that we are dead, spiritually speaking, even as Lazarus was physically dead. And it means that there is no way we can do anything to bring ourselves to life. So believe. Believe that God sent Jesus. But also believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Verse 25. God sent Jesus because he is the only way, the only one who can fix our brokenness, the only one who can be that propitiation, the only one who could pay for sins. We were dead in our sins, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, just as Jesus had the power to raise himself on Resurrection Sunday, so Jesus has the power to make you alive together with him. He is the life. Believe that he is the life. Right here, right now, he gives life and he sustains life. He who has the Son, John tells us in his first epistle, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things John wrote to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Believe that he is the resurrection that by his resurrection power and only by his resurrection power, you will live even if you die. And trust that in the ages to come, he will continue to show you by, 
show you His grace and His love. And it will be as John said, saw in his vision of the world to come. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God will be among them. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Friends, God sent Jesus to enter into our brokenness in order to put an end to our brokenness. He sent Jesus to die to put an end to death. And he sent Jesus to weep so that one day we would weep no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for this amazing story. Father, just the, uh, the mind-blowing idea that the God of the universe would become a man and humble himself to that point, that he would enter into our brokenness, that he would be patient with our spiritual brokenness, and that he would weep silently over these things. And even more, that he would suffer your wrath in our place. Father, the pain, the agony that he's endured on that cross in our place, and not just the physical aspect, as if that were not bad enough, but the spiritual aspect that he bore your wrath in our place. He paid a debt that we could never pay. Lord, these are amazing Amazing truths. They are foundational truths. They are joyous truths. They are what we build our lives on. They are what gives us life even now. John said that we might know that we have eternal life. Father, we just bless you and thank you that we can know that we have eternal life even now. It starts now and it never ends. And it's because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. We just give you all the praise and all the glory for these things. And I pray that you would help us to meditate on them over and over and over again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.